They want $25 billion, billion, for the post office. Now, they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. Now, if we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money. That means they can't have universal mail-in voting. They just can't have it. That was President Trump this week, seeming to confirm what his harshest critics have alleged, that he is deliberately blocking extra funding for the U.S. Postal Service in order to make sure that easy and widespread mail-in voting never takes place during this year's election. It seems on its face a prescription for a disaster at the polls this November, given the continued spread of the coronavirus and legitimate health concerns about in-person voting. What's behind Trump's tough stance, and what are the implications for state and local officials increasingly petrified about how they are going to make sure that everybody who wants to vote will get a chance to do so and, just as important, have their ballots counted? We'll talk to Yahoo News reporter John Ward about the political battle over the president's position. And we'll talk to two top TV correspondents, CNN's Jim Schuto, author of the new book, The Madman Theory, and CBS's John Dickerson, who's got his own new book, The Hardest Job in the World, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined now by uh, our colleague at Yahoo News, John Ward. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So a lot of talk this week about the president's comments saying he doesn't want and may even seek to block the $25 billion that the Democrats are seeking for the Postal Service in order for the election to come off with mail-in balloting. And his reasons are completely transparent. He doesn't want mail-in balloting to take place. He thinks that will cost him the election. So he's going to defund the Postal Service. Never mind defund the police. It's defund the Postal Service in order for the president to achieve his election goals. You've been doing some reporting on this and the reaction on Capitol Hill. Tell us about it. Well, I mean, I think it's important to point out that Congress still does not have a deal on a phase five relief package. The uh, members of Congress basically gave up on Thursday and will not be back until after Labor Day. So that puts us at September 8th or 9th. So we, you know, President Trump said what he said. He said, you know, if they don't have the money, they can't do mail-in voting. And then he kind of tried to walk that back and say he wouldn't oppose the funding. But he's been all over the place on this. Well, that, that, um, John, that, that actually makes it sound like he's using this issue as a bargaining chip to force the Democrats to a deal. That's the way a traditional president might do it, play hardball with something he knew the other party really, really, really wanted. Is that what he's doing, or is it more cynical than that? 
I, I just think because of all his comments about mail-in voting, you have to kind of take it at face value at this point because that's also his M.O. is basically usually to kind of say what he's thinking. And, you know, he has since COVID started and since it became clear that we were going to have huge numbers of Americans who wanted to vote by mail or vote early in person, you know, he's really gone on the warpath against this. And it's hard not to imply here or assume that he's trying to set up a system. You know, I don't know if he has this in mind, but but the one nightmare scenario is that Republicans vote in person, Democrats generally and by and large vote by mail, and the results come in in a staggered fashion and he has a early lead and then he goes out and claims early victory. That's the nightmare scenario here. The so-called the blue the blue shift as they call it. But look, this is more than just a bargaining chip, because at the same time, the uh, RNC and conservative courts, uh, conservative groups are going into court to challenge mail-in voting systems in state after state, creating the potential for a total you know, litigation nightmare over each and every one of the states that are going to be rely or going to be trying to rely on mail-in voting. And that's the you know, that's an extension of the nightmare scenario that there'll be so much litigation. You know, as I've said before, it's going to make Bush versus Gore in 2000. This is going to be Bush, Bush versus Gore on steroids and delay potentially for weeks who is the winner in the election. Delay would be if the results were close, you know, right? We all know that. But I think you also have to look at comments that he made this week about Arizona and Florida, where those states are controlled by Republicans. Republicans, uh, you know, administer the elections there. And he had a complimentary things to say about vote by mail in those states while he was criticizing vote by mail in Nevada, which is run by Democrats. So I think an alternative way of looking at some of this, and I think we'll, we'll have a clearer view, obviously, after the election in hindsight. But I think one alternative view of this is that it's just sort of panic on his part because he knows that the polls are not looking good for him and he's trying to come up with ways to undercut the result. He did that with 2016 when he won. He said that there were millions of votes that were cast by undocumented immigrants because he was embarrassed by the fact that Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than he did. So a lot of it just might be about his own psychology and he feels like, oh, I might lose. I need to start coming up with reasons why I lost that don't have anything to do with me. Now, you were doing some reporting on drop boxes. Uh, explain that. Well, I mean, this is the really important thing for the average listener out there, the regular you know, voter to know, which is you can vote by mail without having to return your ballot through the Postal Service. You still actually do have to apply for an absentee ballot if your state is not sending you one, and a few states are sending absentee ballots to all registered voters. But if you have to apply for a absentee or a mail-in ballot, the Postal Service still does have to send it to you. That's the vehicle for delivery. But once you have that absentee or mail-in ballot, there are alternatives to putting it in the mail. Those alternatives include returning it directly in person to your local county elections office. It also could mean taking it in person to an early voting center or early voting polling place if your state does that. 
and it could mean putting it in a secure Dropbox. Now, all of this is going to vary by state, but those are three options for people who want to vote, you know, either basically they want to avoid long lines and kind of worrying about contracting COVID, but they also want to make sure that their ballot is not caught in the mail at a time when the postal service is being, you know, really kind of the subject of what appear to be political shenanigans. Well, it would appear that at least two very high-profile voters have availed themselves of, uh, of these opportunities, one Donald J. Trump and Melania Trump, uh, at least according to the Palm Beach Post, which reported this week that uh, Florida has sent their mail-in ballots to the president and the, and the first lady. And uh, the White House, I gather, said that he doesn't have a issue with absentee voting. He has an issue with universal mail-in voting. But it does does seem to be a whiff of hypocrisy there. But I wanted to ask you, John, um, what is your sense of whether the Postal Service, you know, actually will be able to handle mail-in voting right now? Because the Postmaster General, who I want to talk about in a second, he's a controversial character, has said that uh, they would be able to handle the surge. And yet you are hearing stories coming out of the, the Postal Service that there are things happening like, you know, they're deactivating mail sorting machines, that uh, they're limiting shelf space, which makes it hard to sort the mail. And this Postmaster General himself has reorganized the post office at the top levels in ways that Democrats at least fear is going to hamper their ability to handle mail-in votes. So what's going on inside the post office? Yeah, I'm going to answer that. Before I do that, I want to just point out that going back to what I just said just before this about alternatives for returning your ballot by mail, we're going to be reporting on this at Yahoo News about what states have drop boxes, what states have early voting. We're going to be putting as much information about this out there for you. And I think, you know, we'll hopefully have you maybe links to a piece I'm working on about some of this, maybe in the show notes. Uh, we'll be we'll be putting this out at Yahoo News. As far as the Postal Service goes, I think there's a lot of smoke here. But I also think, you know, I'll just speak for myself. I'm still trying to understand exactly what's going on. And I think we, we need to continue to kind of look into the impacts of, of these changes in leadership, the impacts of these policy changes in terms of cutting back on overtime and other sort of cost-cutting measures that Postmaster General has put in place, given all of the rhetoric from Trump and, you know, against mail-in voting, against the Postal Service itself, and his clear intent to try to, you know, limit and impede voting by mail, and the fact that DeJoy is a pretty significant donor to Yeah, yeah, uh, let, well, let's talk about yeah, let's yeah. talk about Louis DeJoy. Who is he? He's a billionaire Trump donor who I gather has also had significant stock holdings in uh, companies that uh, that are competitors of the Postal Service. Yeah, and his wife is a nominee for ambassador to Canada, so they are kind of a connected couple. I'm looking at reporting from the Washington Post, which says that their holdings include between 30 and $75 million in assets in competitors or contractors with the U.S. Postal Service, according to a financial disclosure that his wife filed with the Office of Government Ethics when she was nominated for the ambassadorial spot. So, yeah, there's a lot of smoke here. I think that, you know, we need to continue to report out both what his potential conflicts are and what the impacts of his changes are. But it is extremely concerning, I think, to anybody who's, uh, you know, looking at this objectively. 
On the issue of drop boxes, I gather that is something the Democrats want some of this funding to go to. But there are questions uh, about the security of drop boxes and whether people will know where they are, where to find them, whether they can be tampered with. Are these legitimate issues? They're legitimate questions. And there are plenty of there's plenty of guidance about how states can secure these things. I have a multi-page document from the Election Assistance Commission about the three different types of drop boxes and the elaborate steps that are recommended to secure them. Things like making sure that it's you know secured in place so nobody can take it away. Things like having bipartisan teams of election workers who go and pick up the ballots and deliver them to the elections office. And things like having it monitored if it's a 24-7 drop box, because not all drop boxes are 24-7. Some of them are like in a drive-through setting where you have workers sort of administering them. Some of them are inside a location uh, where there's somebody there to kind of make sure that it's not tampered with. And then the hours are limited to the time when that person is there. Some of them are 24-7 and those have to be monitored basically by electronic, you know, basically video surveillance. As far as how people can find them, you know, I'm talking to Arizona, the state elections officials there tell me they don't have a statewide database for where the drop boxes are and you have to check with your county. Michigan, however, you know, has a has over 900 drop boxes that they've got scheduled to be out during, I can't remember how many days ahead of the election, but that'll be in the article. And there will also be a link to the EAC document I mentioned. And I'll have a link to the database with the locations for all 900 uh, drop boxes in Michigan. Well, uh, that should uh, provide some useful information for our Michigan readers and listeners of Skullduggery. Um, so, and we should we should say uh, I just want to tout John's reporting here, which has been terrific on all of these issues. But you were well ahead of the curve. I remember literally the first time I heard this idea that we might not know results on election day or election night was months ago from you, and you wrote that story, and it had not been widely reported, and you've stayed on it, and it's an incredibly important story. So um, hats off to you, and everybody ought to stick with the Yahoo News on this story. I got to say, this strikes me right now as the most important election issue that we've got to stay on top of, because uh, it, it is uh, potentially truly scary that you could have these nightmare scenarios where people don't get their ballots in the right t- at the right time. They don't get counted. They don't get postmarked by the right time. They have trouble finding these drop boxes. All it will take is a little, just a few reports of tampering with those drop boxes or mail-in ballots going to voters who are are no longer at the place they are and other people picking them up. And uh, it's going to, you know, the potential for chaos at the polls seems great. Um, Anyway, we've got a lot more to talk about on this show. But John, thanks for joining us. All right, guys. Talk to you. We are now joined by Jim Shudo, CNN's national security correspondent and uh, anchor of CNN Newsroom and the author of the new book, The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. Jim, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. So The Madman Theory, what is it? 
The Madman Theory is Trump's unpredictability writ large on the world in all the most sensitive places uh, for keeping our country safe. Now, he didn't originate a madman theory. I mean, you could go all the way back to Machiavelli, but let's just go back to Nixon. As you know, Nixon famously had Kissinger communicate to North Vietnam at the height of the Vietnam War that the boss was just mad enough to nuke them, right, to gain leverage in that negotiation. There are White House tapes of Kissinger and Nixon speaking about it, and Nixon even dictating the words to use with the North Vietnamese. Kissinger dutifully did that. I mean, the fact is it didn't work, as you know, North Vietnam did not back down. We know how that war ended. But but Nixon and his team came to, to own the madman theory as part of their brilliant way of dealing with the world. H.R. Haldeman writes about it in his memoirs. Fifty years later, we get another president, a very different kind of president, but one who in business and in world affairs claimed to have the same wisdom, right, that he keeps the other side off balance and swoops in at the end with an outrageous demand or an outrageous concession, all part of a three-dimensional chess game that he has the upper hand in and comes out ahead, right? Keep us safer, make America great again. What's different about Trump's madman theory, and there are lots of differences, is one, he's just as likely to unleash it on allies as adversaries, right? NATO allies, keep them guessing. Will I stay in the alliance? Will I not? If you don't pay me more money, I may be out of it. Canada, you're a national security threat. I'm going to slap you with steel tariffs, right, in the midst of negotiations. North Korea, at the height of tensions with them, my nuclear button's bigger than yours, right? I actually write about in the book that his own advisors were so concerned about Trump's madman theory then that they withheld military options from him. So, so that is Trump's spin on it with one more dimension, that he keeps his own most senior advisors off balance. He doesn't discuss these things with them often. He gets off a phone, he tweets out a decision, and they have to follow. So he unleashes his madmen on all sides, right? And, you know, he says it's part of a grand strategy, but one thing you learn reading this book is his own advisors very much doubt that. Well, that, that's, I mean, that's the obvious question. We know with Nixon, uh, whatever you thought of uh, Richard Nixon, that he was a brilliant strategist and that this wasn't just his own impulsiveness, instincts, uh, there's strategy behind it. And so the question about Trump is, is he consciously being a madman or is he a madman, which I know you get into in your book. So, so, so talk about that. So he's not insane. I mean, I did ask his advisors if they had any doubts about his mental acuity. No, they don't. But perhaps just as worse, right? They have deep doubts about both his judgment and frankly, his motivations, right, where the national interest is confused with his personal interests, whether they be business interests or just his singular focus on pol gaining political advantage, whatever the price is around the world. So in Trump's mind, you know, this is a conscious art of the deal like game and approach to things. The trouble is, one, you know, th the priorities are skewed, right, in his favor and against favor of, of what his job should be about. But also, almost across the board, his advisors talk about how he constantly overestimates his ability and judgment. And to our detriment, right, because when you look at the madman theory as it played out with North Korea, with Iran, with others, it failed, you know. So he uses it to our detriment, but often to his own detriment, because oftentimes 
his exercise of the madman theory undermined his own goals. And I get it. I mean, Syria, for instance, I mean, Syria could have been, speak to Pentagon officials, a great success for him, right? He accelerated the defeat of ISIS, but pulled the rug out from under the, the very small U.S. force presence there after a couple of phone calls with Erdogan and jeopardized that mission. So, Jim, we should point out that we are having this discussion the day after the White House announced this rather extraordinary peace deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates brokered by Jared Kushner. And um, we are so used to mocking Trump's approach to foreign policy, yet here is seems to be an example of a legitimate accomplishment, and one that probably began with the uh, recognition of uh, Jerusalem as the U.S. embassy in Israel, something that was widely derided by most foreign policy experts and certainly widely criticized in the Mideast. But that plus the threat of annexation seems to have be what spurred the UAE to make this deal, because they thought, well, if we can at least stop Bibi Netanyahu from annexing Palestinian territory, that will be a plus for the region. So is this an example of actually a success of the madman theory or Trump's rather unorthodox approach to foreign policy? It is. Listen, and in this book, I make every effort to give credit where credit is due. And this is one, one example of a very important success. I mean, I talk a lot in the book because I have a particular experience in China for years as a journalist, and I worked in government there, that Trump ending the old status quo of, of a somewhat deferential approach to China, even in the midst of, you know, malign activities across the board, from my perspective, was a long time coming. And I tell personal stories of being in China before that change under Trump. And there are other successes as well. I mean, he killed Baghdadi. I mean, he killed Qasem Soleimani at great risk and seemingly, at least to this point, at a lower cost than many imagine. So there's no question there are successes. And I do my best to give him credit for that in the big picture. I suppose the question is, is it connected to a larger strategy, right? A larger approach to the world with end games in each of these scenarios. I will tell a story, as you mentioned, because you bring up the moving of the embassy. I talk about that very early in the book, because this is one of Trump's early decisions in the first year in office that caused a lot of upset and surprise. I mean, that move, you know, talking to the Taiwanese president, right, right after his election. And the president was warned after each of these moves about how he had just blown it all up and he had created an enormous mess here. And that mess didn't follow. I, I, I spoke with Susan Gordon, who was going to be the most powerful intelligence official in the country until he pushed her out. She, she was going to be DNI. She was number two. And she describes his reaction after the move of the embassy, because the, the intel assessments had been, you move the embassy, you're going to spark months and years of rage in the Middle East, terror attacks, et cetera. Well, it didn't follow. And she says that Trump's reaction to that was, you guys told me this was going to cause mayhem. It didn't. I know better than you. And that it reinforced his confidence in his own judgment and led him to be even more aggressive in the period that followed. And what we see, what we saw in the last 24 hours could be, you know, three years removed, one result of that and a positive result. 
One of the ways that his unconventional foreign policy style and governing style has um, upended Washington is it has totally disrupted the sort of national security decision-making process. You know, there are changes from administration to administration. Presidents have different styles. They have national security advisors with different approaches. But largely, there's been continuity in how we make foreign policy decisions. How has that changed under this president? He's blown it up, right? He's blown it out of the water. You know, the the national security decision-making process, as you and I know it, still exists under this president, right? You've got the people dutifully staffing the positions in the NSC, churning out the president's daily brief and, and decision papers and national defense strategy and so on. The thing is, the president, to their knowledge, doesn't read those documents, right? And often doesn't just not follow them, but contradicts them. And what you find is the national security policymaking process often follows the decision rather than precedes it, right? If you look at the two tweets 10 months apart regarding Syria in December 2018 and October 2019, when he when he withdrew or ordered the withdrawal of U.S. forces there, there was no preparation for that. He got off the phone and everybody was surprised from his national security advisor down to the commanders on the ground. And, and then they have to sort of, you know, get up to speed and, and sort of retroactively justify it or backfill the president's decision. Now, another phenomenon happens as well, where you have his senior advisors looking to hem in his worst impulses, right, and sometimes contradict his decisions. You see that with Syria. After that first decision, folks in the Pentagon started thinking, well, did he really say we got to pull all the troops out right away? Let's pull some out and see if his attention will turn. And it did for 10 months. And then he withdrew him again. <laughs> and at that time, they thought the gig was up. I spoke to the folks who, who had to carry out the decision, and then they came up with an idea. Let's convince the old man that the troops are really there to protect the oil fields, right? Which he picked up on immediately, right? (laughs) The fact is those soldiers there are doing more than protect the oil fields. They're still back in Kurds. They still have a counter-terror mission, but but it allowed them to recast it in a way to convince him. So, you know, you, you do still have folks working against his policy from within. I mean, if he's listening to this right now, you know, he's not going to like he's not going to like that. But it, but it's but it's in the record and we've seen it play out. I should add that what Trump added to that oil field issue was uh, talking about bringing in American oil companies to manage those oil fields, which, of course, would have been an absolute violation of international law. We could not seize oil fields in a foreign country and use them for uh, American profit. But, you know, something you said before about how when he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, he was told that there would be uh, rioting and violence throughout the Mideast that didn't happen. And that reinforced his own confidence in his judgment and his instincts. And, you know, I suppose the best one can say is his instincts are hit or miss. Sometimes they are fine. Other times, such as his instincts on coronavirus, have been, uh, I think, a disaster. But I guess, you know, the sort of comeback to that would be, you know, the traditional foreign policy approach of the cognoscente have been hit 
or miss as well. You know, Exhibit A, the Iraq War, the CIA's total botching of intelligence uh, in the run-up to Iraq War, Obama's handling of Syria, where, you know, setting a red line, failing to enforce it, and then, you know, leading to, or at least allowing to continue, one of the great humanitarian disasters of our time. So, you know, when you stack up the record of the foreign policy elites and cognoscente and establishment with the way Trump has handled things. I mean, tell us how you assess um, the record, the respective records. This is the thing. I I have a long chat with uh, Peter Navarro that that I play out in this book where where he makes exactly that point. He says, the establishment, what have they gotten right? You know, Uh, and you listed some of the mistakes and there are more of them, right? Beyond that, so they make a good point, right, that, that there are a lot of mistakes there that, that make you question the wisdom of the establishment. And, and beyond that, you know, I get into the politics of America first, too. What's the politics that's driving it? And Steve Bannon, who I interviewed for the book, gets into this, too. And he, you know, he talks a lot about the deplorables, right, which is, which is some of the political drive behind America first. And he's like, the, 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 in his words, the deplorables excuse me for quoting him word for word, you know, he says the deplorables got fucked by globalization, right? Lose their jobs to trade deals, et cetera. And then they get screwed as well by the quote unquote endless wars because it's their kids who are getting sent to these wars, right? On repeated deployments and paying the price from it, paying the price from it. Of course, it's not just them, but, but you know, that, that's, you get where that animus is coming from. So that drives not only the president's political motivation for this kind of approach to the world, but also his skepticism of all the stuff that gets shouted at him from, you know, the Washington intelligentsia, et cetera. You, you get that point. Now, the trouble is they also forget the successes. You know, th- this, this natural skepticism of alliances, that NATO is just one big scam. Well, NATO also helped keep the peace in Europe for 70 years, right? Which not only pre- prevented bloodshed and checked uh, the Soviet Union, but also created a peaceful market for American products, right? You know, that uh, he's throwing barbs at, at the U.S., uh, you know, South Korea alliance because he's trying to quintuple their contribution to it right now. But that also protected a country and allowed South Korea to grow to what it is today, right? So it becomes where they paint it all with one brush and just want to throw the whole damn thing out. I mean, I, I have a long conversation with Navarro about how he says Canada is not really our ally. And I'm like, I'm doing the interview with my, my jaw on the table as we're drinking coffee. I'm saying, Canada? You know, they, they were on Normandy, you know, they right up to Afghanistan. I, I've been to Afghanistan dozens of times, and the Canadians are tip of the spear there, man. And they paid for it in blood. I said, Canada's like, well, they really did that for their own interests. And I was like, yeah, but also shared interest. We were fighting on the same side. And when you hear that, you're like, okay, I get the mistakes, but they want to throw the whole damn thing out. And you see that in the president's decision making. Well, I mean, I think that what that gets at is and to the extent that Trump has a, a foreign policy theory, it's all through the prism of economics and trade, right? And, and you write about that in the book and, and it's transactional. And I think you say somewhere in the book that Trump is the foreign policy and the foreign policy is Trump. So what is the lens through which he sees American security and our foreign policy interests? The bottom line, man, you know, each one of these, whether it's the, the bills for NATO or the bills for U.S. forces in South Korea, but trading relationship, really, 
alliances become about trade. He, first of all, he has a very simplistic view. I'm sure you guys have discussed this before about trading relationships in general, that, that any trade imbalance to him is a loss, right? You know, if I'm buying more from you than you are from me, then I'm losing and being robbed somehow. That doesn't necessarily make sense. I mean, there are countries that you need to buy more from than they're going to buy from you. I mean, it's like you and I buy more from the grocery than it buys from us because the grocery's got what we need, you know, at, at the time. So he's got that quite simplistic view of it. But he also has a, you know, a chip on his shoulder about the U.S. being taken advantage of, and that colors his view of the entire relationship. You know, it's interesting. Fiona Hill describes this to me that that in the book that he is more hostile to America's allies in Europe than, say, an adversary like Russia, precisely because we're allies. And he says they owe us more because we we defended them in the war, we've got our troops in Germany, et cetera. They're like, his hostility toward the ally is greater than towards the country that's trying to take you down. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable way of looking at the world. I mean, H.R. McMaster talks in the book about how he had so much difficulty trying to explain to Trump the ancillary benefits of alliances, that it's, it's not just transactional, that you have shared values, uh, shared defense of the rule of law, shared defense of democratic principles, history, et cetera, or intel, you know, counter-terror intel, something simple as that. He sees it through one dimension often. So let's talk a little about a subject that you spend a lot of time in the book, and that's North Korea. And, uh, you know, in some ways, the, uh, the North Korea story sort of embodies everything we've been talking about here uh, in terms of the madman theory. It starts out with, you know, the fire and fury threats to Kim Jong-un. Uh, you know, my nuclear button is bigger than yours. And there was a period of time that uh, it did look like we were on a path to a real conflict with North Korea, a actual war. And yet it leads to this sort of, you know, sudden bromance between them and the, uh, you know, they're writing these gushy letters to one another. We're going to learn more about those apparently when Bob Woodward's book comes out next month and the uh, summit in Singapore that doesn't really lead to anything. So I guess on the one hand, you know, you write in the book uh, at the end of the day, it may be that Kim, it was Kim who played Trump, not the other way around. On the other hand, compared to where we were at the start of his administration, and let's just dial back and remember it was Obama who was warning Trump during the transition, this is going to be your biggest national security problem, uh, uh, North Korea getting a nuclear bomb. Are we any worse off than we were when the whole thing started? Well, yes, based on, on the simple bottom line of North Korea has more, not fewer nukes today than it had four years ago. It's got a more advanced ballistic missile program and a greater capability to miniaturize the nuclear device and put it on the top of the missile. So, But as opposed to what? I mean, certainly, you know, they were building that nuclear capability through multiple administrations, which which seemed unable to to stop them. Everything that they did failed. Right. So, so Trump's yeah. success is to be as played as his predecessors were, right, at the end of the day, right? They, yeah. You know, because, you know, all, everyone tried, they tried pressure and they tried negotiation, whether you're talking about Clinton, Bush or Obama, and they all failed, right? And in effect, got played by, by Kim and, and, and his father. Uh, listen, no, no one faults the guy for trying, right? 
But if you look at the bottom line, it's difficult to call it a success. And listen, there was a point in late 2017 where the president's senior military advisors were so concerned about the president's decision making, I'm told, that they hesitated to give him military options because in those tense days, you remember this, you remember the discussion of the bloody nose strike, right? You know, this limited military attack that kind of forced them to the table. I don't know if you had the same experience, but but no one I spoke to in the Pentagon believed such a thing existed because their view was North Korea would conclude that a limited strike was the beginning of a decapitation strike and then rain hellfire down on Seoul. I mean, the, the intel assessments as to what that limited engagement would look like was tens of thousands of dead in Seoul, including Americans and their families there. So, you know, ratcheted up, created that or, or contributed to it. it. Didn't create it; it existed. He contributed to the tension, and then brought it back down through three summits. And again, diplomacy. No one faults him for attempting diplomacy, but the mistake was, and again, his own advisors uh, telling me this was that he imagined his personal relationship with Kim, the love letters, the three face-to-face -face summits by themselves would change North Korea's calculus. When throughout, the the, the smart folks were saying. No, I mean, those were not the intel assessments. You have to get concessions before you sit down from him, before you say, cancel U.S. military exercise with the South Korea. You need to get something in return, and he didn't. So you're right, no worse than his predecessors, but no better. And, and that's not quite a success story for the, for the madman theory approach. One thing uh, that Trump has not done is to get us into any new wars. And he is... Uh, seems to be conflict diverse in this one in this one way, not in any other way. But what did you learn in your reporting about why Trump has uh, been so averse to deploying American uh, troops and has not allowed himself to get sucked in the way most of our pre previous presidents have? Well, some of it is political that, that he ran on and he believes he was elected in part on that promise to end the endless wars. And that's one reason we hear him repeat that phrase. And it's one reason why he, it seems he wants to draw down U.S. forces in Afghanistan to this $5,000 figure by November. I'm, you know, I'm told, you know, possibly because he wants to compare himself to where Obama was, right, you know, before you get to, get to the election day. So there's a political element to that, but there's also a personal element that he doesn't want to go to war, right? He doesn't, you know, under, and, and that's not a bad thing, right, to, to avoid war for all the, all the damage that that might cause. And it's kind of interesting, you know, Steve Bannon talks about that in the book, that there's, you know, that's the flip side to the bluster, right, the my nuclear button's bigger than yours, or Iran, we will crush you, et cetera, that, that deep down he does not want to go to war. It's actually interesting, in you know, Fiona Hill ta talks about this, uh, that in terms of Russia, and there are a whole host of questions about his relationship with Russia that, that, that his senior, <laughs> senior advisors talk to me about very openly in this book, but that at the root of it, he does have this genuine ambition of reaching some sort of grand nuclear agreement with Russia, reducing nuclear warheads and helping prevent nuclear war, that there is a sincere drive there for that. We shouldn't, no reason to fault him for that. You know, fantastic. I suppose the difficulty is, not just with North Korea, but even at the tensest moments with Iran, again, his advisors thought that the decisions he was making were unpredictable enough and disconnected from U.S. policy and his advisors' best advice enough that they thought he might unwittingly take the U.S. 
during on a path to war that he didn't intend, but set the stage for. I mean, there are genuine concerns now about the escalation that's happening with China, possibly j- driven by you know election politics, but that he's getting the two countries on a path of confrontation that's difficult to walk off. I mean, Bannon talks in the book about being at war with China in five years. I mean, that's an alarming prospect to talk about openly. But you know, Michael, there, there are hawks in this administration who, who see that as the inevitable future. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, China sort of as our final subject here, because it's one you are an expert in, which does remind me a question I've always wanted to ask you. Uh, and you refer to this in the book. You were a journalist in China, but then you also worked for the U.S. embassy you were for the U.S. government. What did you do for the uh, for the State Department? I was chief of staff to the U.S. ambassador there, uh, which was a it was an offer I got kind of out of the blue. Who was the ambassador then? Uh, Gary Locke. And okay, we yeah. met, right. and sure. we had discussions. We had discussions about China, and I I had a lifelong interest in China, and, and the chance to see it from the inside was one I just didn't want to turn down. And I learned a lot from inside. In fact, I tell a story in the book about how that informed my view of Trump's approach to China. Because when I was there, I saw America's kind of reflexive deference to China at every move, and and it just struck me as as uh, blind, right? Blind to what China was up to. So just personally, I welcome, you know, Trump standing up to, to Chinese uh, malign activities. I, I certainly don't want to go to war with the place. I think that would be bad for both of us. But, you know, my personal experience there helped drive my discussions with, with the folks in his administration who handle the China policy. So just along those lines, I mean, uh, certainly there's been a lot of provocative acts by the Chinese in the last couple of years, the crackdown in Hong Kong, the uh, mass detention in concentration camps of the Uyghurs, what they told us and didn't tell us about the Wuhan virus. As you sort of look at the series of events and the sort of increasingly, you know, confrontational attitude of the Chinese, how do you assess Trump's responses? So I'm, I'm one uh, that I understand the toughness. Uh, and from a personal standpoint, uh, I, you know, I think it's probably necessary, right? You know, the question is, is it connected to a strategy? What is the end game? What is the end game today? Is there a diplomatic off-ramp? Is there a particular concession from China you're looking for? Would this president ratchet down the current escalation if he gets this you know, long hope for a second phase, you know, trade deal, you know, are, are there economic concessions China could make that would uh, take this president on a different path? Because because right now, I mean, many of these things that have become the issues, right, they are, you know, they're not going to be solved with a trade deal, right? I mean, you're talking about a, uh, the deten- a 21st century concentration camp. I think it's the, the most undercovered story of recent years, don't you think? I mean, the, the fact that this is going on largely in silence or the end of Hong Kong. I mean, I've spent years living in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is done as far as we know. Those are issues that are not going to be solved with a trade deal. What are the levers of power that can actually change Chinese behavior on that? It's it's not clear. And I, and listen, I'm not saying that that any president necessarily, does Joe Biden, has Joe Biden articulated the idea to solve those problems? No. So, you know, a lot of this is necessary. The question as with everything with Trump and foreign policy is what is the end game? What is the larger larger strategy here? My last question is, since you mentioned Joe Biden and we're a couple of months out from an election, Joe Biden obviously is um, someone with a a lot of experience uh, around the world and, and in, in terms of uh, 
foreign policy, a much more conventional approach. What do you think the biggest changes will be if Biden and uh, Kamala Harris uh, end up taking over? Well, on China, I think less than folks imagine, right? I talk about this in the book, that the new approach to China is a largely bipartisan one, that the, the old status quo is pretty much done on trade and other issues. I do think, you know, you might see some adjustments to that, but big picture, not a massive turn. I think on other issues, I mean, you could imagine a, a Biden speech early in his term saying, NATO, we are all in, right? We, mm -hmm. we see our future with you. We are, we are, you know, joined together. South Korea and Japan, we stand by our alliances with you. This won't become a bottom line issue. Canada and Mexico, we have trade disagreements, but you're not a national security threat, right? You know, that kind of stuff. You could imagine those, those changes. Interestingly, though, I don't think that any president, Republican or Democrat, is on his way to a massive new deployment in the Middle East, right, short of another 9-11 or something. I mean, oddly, you know, one irony of Trump, right, is the number of total troops in the Mideast outside of Afghanistan has increased, not decreased during his time, considering all these deployments we have in the Gulf you know, in the midst of the heightening tensions with Iran. But, you know, th those those big direction issues are moving, you know, are, are you, you don't look for dramatic changes. Now, statements like that on NATO and other alliances are not insignificant because the, the, the fissures that Trump has opened up in those relationships have big consequences for those relationships and, frankly, for the way our adversaries view those alliances and where they see, you know, they might be able to take advantage of it. And I guess one other big one would be on climate change, right? Re-entering the Paris Agreement, so forth. Yeah, or even just, or even just a simple statement of it's happening, right? And yeah. it's not a hoax. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's like that would be an enormous victory. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, um, uh, the book is uh, The Madman Theory: Trump Takes on the World. Uh, Jim Shudo, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks to both of you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks to everybody for giving the book a chance. We are now joined by John Dickerson, CBS correspondent, 60 Minutes, old competitor of Clydemans and I. When uh, we were at Newsweek, John was at Time Magazine. John, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's, I'm, I, you're conjuring some very intense periods that we all um, competed against one another. So I'm very yeah. happy to be with you in more in more congenial terms. Climate and I relive those days in our heads. Uh, you know, you you, uh, you compete against each other. You know, when you're in your prime, and then uh, you get to be old guys like us, and you're just all friends on podcasts. <laughs> John has this new book. The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. Uh, great book. Congrats, John. But I got to say, I love the introduction where you take us back to 1956. Dwight Eisenhower is president. Adlai Stevenson is running against him. Stevenson attacks Ike's record on the economy. And Ike's press secretary responds by accusing Stevenson of cheering for bad news. And when reporters ask the president about this, Ike says that his rival must have been misquoted because he couldn't believe he would have said that. And 
even if he did in his heart of hearts believe that he said it, he didn't want to take the bait. Imagine a politician not taking the bait, but because he just didn't want to get stuck into the what he called the noise and the extravagance of the campaign. And what struck me about that that anecdote is that this is the president deciding not to take an easy shot at his rival and how what a distance we've traveled when basically the Eisenhower believed to do so would be beneath the dignity of the presidency. And you now have a president who has designed his presidency around taking shots at basically anyone. Right. And well, what was amusing about it is Eisenhower does change his strategy a bit, and it's big news. He's going to fire back at Stevenson after apparently he's upset at what he views this low blow by his Democratic challenger. And the firing back is so tame by today's standards, it's worth uh, reviewing. What, what does Ike do? Yeah, it's patty cake. First of all, it doesn't happen until September 26th of the election year, right? The election's in November, so it's a month left. And it's front page news all over the uh, all over the country. Ike decides to answer demo lies. Ike setting up policy of firing back. So these headlines, which are at the top of the newspapers all over the country, make it sound like Eisenhower is going to come out and fire every expletive at Stevenson he can. What he's done is he's asked his staff to produce valid information from the Department of Labor that challenges Stevenson's claim about a cost of living adjustment calculation from the Labor Department. I mean, in today's world of Twitter, this would not get, you know, a single retweet. It's so calm and placid. But in the context of Ike and the context of the campaign at the time, it was considered, uh, you know, sufficient enough to haul out the big type and make it the headline of the uh, local newspapers. So, John, if that is one bookend and, and Trump is the other, and of course, you do go all the way back to George Washington, but a lot of your book is about how the presidency has been transformed in that time and you know all of the forces at play, partisanship, all of the other factors. But the larger point in your book is that the presidency is broken, or as Leon Panetta, uh, Clinton's uh, chief of staff and later CIA director and defense secretary said, it's uh, the presidency is out of control. So just... Sort of in what way, just for our listeners, in what way is the presidency broken? Well, one way is the way we've already discussed in that introduction, which is just that the cut and thrust of the modern campaign has become, has infected the presidency. And so, and the campaigns are about slash and burn and no compromise, but governing is about compromise and governing is about leaving some flesh on your opponent because you might need them the next day. But that's one sliver of the way in which the job has gotten more complex and harder to do. And the issue set that presidents have to deal with now between Eisenhower's day and President Trump's day has gotten bigger. Let's take national security. So you don't have the nuclear annihilation threat the way you did when there was a constant combat with the Soviet Union. But you still have nuclear proliferation as a problem. But you also have terrorism, both by organizations like Al Qaeda, but also lone wolf actors. And then you have cyber terrorism. You have more conflicts all over the world that you have to pay attention to now as a president than you did in in Ike's day. And they and they happen in a way that a president is much more involved. They're not slow moving armies They're The president can watch the actual operation take place as as a drone strike hits somebody that morning that he's picked 
uh, should be at the wrong end of, of the U.S. force. That's just in the national security realm. In the economic realm, you not only have the stewardship function of a presidency, you have to name the right people and have the right policies to affect the economy, but then you have the last presidents have had to deal with economic firefighting, as they call it, which is emergency action required to deal with the Great Recession or to deal with COVID-19, where it's different than what FDR had to do, which was a kind of long, drawn-out series of economic challenges. What the president has to do now is work with Congress, to the extent that Congress is working, to move very quickly at a time where economic transactions move at the speed of light. And then the final thing that has gotten more complicated is basically the presidents have lost a working partner with Congress. Congress has either abdicated part of its role or, because of partisanship, doesn't play the participatory role in in legislation that it used to in the past. You know, and, and one other aspect of the presidency that you talk about and how it's changed is really the expectations of the American people in terms of what role the president plays, in terms of being consolers, in terms of having empathy, in terms of being there, giving voice to the feelings of Americans. I mean, you have a lot in there that I found fascinating about how presidents today respond to every national disaster, and that a few decades ago didn't at all because there wasn't an expectation that they would. Talk about that transition. Well, that's, yes, exactly. So if the idea is that the to-do list for the president has gotten longer and bigger, this is one of the major items on the to-do list. And it's tantalizing because on the one hand, so I went back and, and looked, actually, I found these headlines about Ike that we were talking about, not because I was looking for them, but because I was doing some research for a, a podcast I used to do called Whistle Stop about this expectation to respond to national disasters. And I went back and looked at Ike, and there would be hurricanes swirling off the east coast of the United States, and there would be no coverage about the president and what he was doing or not doing to combat those hurricanes. No coverage about the president after they hit, and which was seemed crazy in the wake of uh, George Bush's response to Hurricane Katrina and how how much that damaged his presidency. Now, when there's a hurricane, you've got to get the president into the windbreaker, get him over to FEMA and have him furrow his brow as they show him where the track of the hurricane is going to be. That expectation did not exist before basically Johnson. And even after Johnson, it doesn't. But what Johnson found was if he responded quickly, and there's a, the best story is Hurricane Betsy, when he goes down there, not necessarily to tend to the people of Louisiana, but basically to keep the senator from Louisiana, Senator Long, kind of uh, to coddle him because he knew he would need him down the pike for some other piece of legislation. He goes down and he realizes he can do something to help these suffering people in Louisiana. And television, which was coming on the scene, needed a, a, a leading actor when there were these national disasters with all of this drama that television fed off of, because there's nothing more immediate and dramatic than weather. But if you've got a big national drama, you need a central character. And that central character was the president. And President Johnson was certainly willing to play that role because when he flew back to Washington and delivered aid to the people of Louisiana, the front pages of all the national newspapers heralded his quick action. And presidents love to be able to be the superhero in the story. And so that expectation of the president grew and grew and grew. And that's just for the disaster relief part. There is the emotional pastoral role that presidents have been called on to play. Again, not always there. After the shooting at the University of Texas, Lyndon Johnson didn't speak to the nation. After a massacre at McDonald's in California, President Reagan didn't even, there's not any signal that he said anything about it 
in uh, his presidential papers. But now, after a sufficient national disaster or shooting or some uh, event, we expect presidents to come in and play that consoling and pastoral role. And those are very different skills. And they, have, they also are skills you have to have in addition to all those other things that we talked about earlier on the economy and national security. Well, I would say that consoling pastoral role is not exactly uh, Donald Trump's forte, to put it a bit mildly. But I, I want to take you back to how we got from Ike, who thought it was beneath the dignity of his office to respond to political charges like the one Stevenson was making to where we are today with Donald Trump, who responds to everything. And, you know, it seems to me there's sort of a long history to the evolution of the hyperpartisanship of American politics, which is where we are today. And talk a little bit about that, how you see that evolution took place. Yeah. So campaigns have always been ugly. And there was no, even though even the founders who like to think they were high minded and virtuous uh, were absolute dogs when it came to political fights. And one of my favorite stories, which I researched for my last book, uh, Whistle Stop, was about Thomas Jefferson's attack dog, James Callender. And he was basically worked for the equivalent of the National Enquirer, only a lot meaner. He's the one who basically he busted Alexander Hamilton for his affair with Mariah Reynolds, which led to the Reynolds pamphlet, which basically ended Hamilton's career. And then and he did that basically on behalf of Jefferson or certainly in concert with Jefferson's wishes. And then he exposed Jefferson and Sally Hemings when they had a falling out. Right. Same guy. Right. So he just he destroys Adams on behalf of Jefferson, gets Jefferson or helps Jefferson get elected. Destroys Hamilton on behalf of Jefferson. He Well, he destroyed Hamilton first. Then he destroyed Adams. Adams threw him in jail. He was so critical of him. He's the one who called uh, Adams a hermaphroditical character, which is usually the quote <laughs> that you hear rolled out when people talk about how campaigns have always been awful. And and he, so he throws Calendar in jail. Calendar gets out of jail. Jefferson's president. He comes to Jefferson. He writes Jefferson and says, hey, buddy, I helped you out. Make me postmaster of Richmond. Jefferson says, I'm sorry, who's calling? He pretends he doesn't know him. And then Callender gets furious and outs him for his his uh, his relationship with Sally Hemings. And Jefferson's genius relative to Hamilton is Jefferson just ignored it. And it, it basically went away in the end. Hamilton, of course, uh, wrote the Reynolds pamphlet, which which uh, torched his his career. But this is all to say that it was very ugly at the beginning. But there was a space between campaigning and governing. And because presidents were not directly involved in the campaigning themselves um, as much until, you know, as the parties dwindled, presidents become more active in their campaigns. So basically, in the middle of the last century, and now presidents are entirely engaged in their own campaigns so that the president themselves starts to have to engage at a greater level in the muck and the and the viciousness of campaigning. And so that's what has pulled more pulled the actual has, has I guess I should say thinned the wall between the, the ugliness you need in campaigns and the person who ultimately has to govern. It's like in a negotiation. You hire the lawyers to go do the negotiation so that you, if you're taking over a company, can re remain friendly with the CEO of the company you're taking over because you need that cordiality. So you let the lawyers fight it out in their ugly thing, but you sort of retain a kind of public collegiality because you'll need that when the deal is done 
to make everything seem nice. Well, that was well, just, that was the convention to, with president. Right. Just to add, it seems like that wall between campaigning and governing for president has now completely collapsed. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it, John's with point. The, with the news. Yeah. With the news that Trump wants to give his convention acceptance speech from the yeah. White House itself. <laughs> Well, exactly. And I became fixated on George Herbert Walker Bush, who you guys both covered. And you remember the 88 campaign. It had set the low watermark, as it were, for the ugliness of campaigns. Lee Atwater, basically, when Michael Dukakis was up 18 points over George W. Bush, he said, I'm going to tear the bark off that bastard. And he basically went through a very methodical campaign of making uh, Dukakis seem un-American. And George Herbert Walker Bush engaged in and abetted and helped that along. Then when he got into office, he recognized a real separation between the tactics required to win and the behavior required of a president. And he wrestled with that. And John Meacham's book is full of that wrestling and basically getting pulled into making bad decisions that were both against his character and against the prudence of governing because of what the campaigns pulled you into. So George Bush nevertheless recognized a wall between the two. But Donald Trump has done two things that are different. So he recognizes no wall between. He behaves uh, with the same kind of attack mentality as president that he did in the campaign. And then secondarily, he has done what I can't think of another president doing, which is taking the tools of the office and the obligations of the office and and basically making them and putting them in the service of his reelection and his campaign. Presidents always did things to keep themselves in office, of course, but but President Trump has taken it to an extra level that we haven't seen, particularly, obviously, with respect to Ukraine and the matters for which he was impeached. Even Republicans who didn't vote for him to uh, be convicted nevertheless said what he did was wrong to basically bend U.S. foreign policy for the purposes of his own presidential campaign. So as you were saying, Michael, it's, it's that wall between campaigning, doing what it takes to get elected and doing what it takes to stay in office, that wall between governing and campaigning has basically disappeared under President Trump. You know, John, there's a, a kind of a fascinating mini narrative in your book that gets at the question uh, that Mike was asking about this evolution. And it's between 1983 and uh, September 30th, 1990. So 1983, when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, who were rivals and started off being uh, pretty an enormous amount of antipathy, but they managed to work together and they, they made Social Security so solvent. And then you flash forward to, I think you referred to this gathering of uh, meat-fed men in, in Brooks Brothers suits in the Rose Garden in, on September 30th, 1990, when, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, George H.W. Bush is announcing, was it the deal with Rostenkowski, the tax deal, where ultimately Bush raised taxes, which cost him his election, right? And I think that the sort of central figure here in this evolution is Newt Gingrich, right? So he's gathered all of these Republicans and Democrats for this announcement. Newt Gingrich is not willing to be part of, um, of this moment, congratulatory moment, right? What happens? So Newt Gingrich basically turns against the so George Bush has put together a budget deal with the Democratic leaders in, in uh, the House and Senate and has this event at the White House in which you have if you go watch on C-SPAN the, the event. I mean, you have Bob Dole congratulating Dick Gephardt. 
You have Senator Mitchell congratulating Bob Dole. You have uh, George Bush ladling praise on the Democrats as well as the Republicans. But it's a bipartisan kumbaya moment of a kind we really just don't have anymore. And everybody's very self-congratulatory about finally getting this budget deal put together. And Gingrich, who would have been there as one of the uh, leaders in Congress, bailed from the event and went back to his uh, colleagues in the conservatives in Congress and was greeted as a as a conquering hero for not going along with the Republican president. So he basically said that George Bush had capitulated on his no new taxes pledge, but more important, had broken from the conservative ideology about taxes. So Gingrich was basically holding a purity position, which then uh, Pat Buchanan took and turned into a presidential campaign where he ran against George W. Bush in 1992 um, in New Hampshire, didn't beat him, but sufficiently weakened him that it contributed to Bush's weakness that uh, ultimately uh, led to his defeat against Bill Clinton. Now, Clinton ran a good campaign and that kind of thing, but but it was certainly a wobbly party. And that was in part because of Gingrich Buchanan. But as you mentioned, Gingrich had been waging a long war, which really goes back, you know, well before bolting from uh, from George W. Bush. And the argument was basically the only way to be Democrats who have held control of the House for so long is to make a, a deep cultural attack against the Democratic Party and say not just that their policies are wrong, but that they are evil. And so that was the not only didn't want capitulation from his own party, but he also was successful in demonizing the Democratic Party in a way that feels very consistent with the demonization that Donald Trump has made a central part of his public character. And let's not forget, it worked. I mean, in 1994, under Gingrich's leadership, the Republicans retook control of the House for the first time in, what, 40 years. So as a purely political matter, it seems to have been a pretty smart strategy. Yes, it worked. And it worked in the service of longstanding Republican ideals, right? So he came in and the contract with America, they moved through tax cuts, balanced budget amendment, uh, welfare reforms increase in defense spending. They did all of these things. And it's actually not unlike with Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump has delivered very well for Republicans. He's kept taxes low, slashed regulations, increased defense spending, protected um, or done everything he can to diminish abortion rights. Um, He's named judges up and down the the scale who are um, conservatives and have been vetted by the Federalist Society. And so he has done he has broken with Republican orthodoxy, but but he has broken with it to so little noise from Republicans on things like deficit reduction, which, you know, I've spent my whole career covering Republicans talking about spending restraint and being conscious of the deficit. But that all that talk has gone completely, which raises questions about really whether it was a central tenant of the Republican coalition. So Trump has delivered for Republicans. And where he has broken from traditional Republican orthodoxy, there hasn't been much pushback at all. John, how should we think about Trump and the presidency? I mean, I guess the question is, is he just a kind of a useful foil for what you write about in this book? Or or is he an aberration? And say he loses three months from now, Joe Biden becomes president. He will, his tone obviously is very different. He will probably restore dignity to that office. But projecting forward, do you think Donald Trump in any fundamental way has transformed the presidency? 
Well, I think he is. Uh, it's a great question. I mean, so Donald Trump is both a president that has to be analyzed, and then he is also a kind of a measuring device that allows us to look at the office itself because of the many things that he's done, which is uh, excavated some of the, these questions of our expectations of the office and, and why we have the norms that we have and are they worth having. And so in one way, he's transformed the office in the sense that people now, we are having a searing moment of questioning race in America and what the new approach to black Americans in both the criminal justice system, but also in the entire caste system of American relations, what that's going to look like. And a president attuned to that pain in America and this moment of flux could just rhetorically, but also then also through policy and um, could could answer that call. Donald Trump has, has shown no interest in answering in answering that call. I think people recognize that, at least the polling suggests that that's something that a president needs to do, that a president needs to be able to. And this is a James Wilson definition of character. Empathy is a part of character, James Wilson, the conservative uh, political scientist said. And what that means is being able to take into account the thoughts and feelings of people who are not in your political coalition. And that's what a president must do, because while your base gets you into the job, when you get in the job, you represent the whole country. And unless you can hear the concerns of the other base or the other party or people who are not in your political coalition, unless you can do that, they will not feel heard. And people who don't feel heard tend to take to the streets and then tend to do things more violently. So it's, it's, we recognize now a president's the necessity to be able to hear the whole country. So I think that and that's just one of the many ways in which the president's um, disinterest in a lot of the roles of the presidency have highlighted how important those roles are. I think there are ways in which he has pushed back against the cocooning nature of Washington that um, while you may not like the solutions in the end, his irritation with the generals about Afghanistan is pretty healthy in terms of pushing back against the received wisdom about that war. And again, you may not like his solutions, but the willingness to question what you're handed as a president is probably a very healthy thing for any president to have. It depends on what you're questioning, I suppose. And you, know, you, you based on your instincts, but if somebody presents you with real information, such as intelligence that the Kremlin is paying bounties to the Taliban for killing Americans, and and it, that's not something you want to deal with, you just ignore it. So, uh, yeah, nobody would would argue that his response to that, and particularly in the, in in uh, his most recent interview with Jonathan Swan, his response to that would be would be an aberration from the office for sure. Right. But I wanted to ask you, look, you've been a host of uh, Face the Nation on CBS this morning. I want to ask you a little bit about how you cover the Trump administration and, and this president, you know, a president who says so many preposterous things that are clearly false, that are clearly can't be supported, and yet has these minions of administration officials who go on the shows that you have hosted and have to stick to the president's talking points. How do you deal with that without seeming to become, you know, the opposition party that uh, Trump wants you to be and yet still hold them accountable? Yeah, well, it's been the, it's it's the thing we've been wrestling with 
since he basically came on the scene. And, you know, it's a very delicate thing because a lot of your audience is still conditioned to and habituated to the old way of covering presidencies. And so I think you, you, you know, just because the president says it doesn't mean it's it's news, which used to be a kind of standard, um, because sometimes the president says things that are not true. And so so either sometimes you just have to exercise you have to exercise news judgment. If the president says something that's not true and you know won't be true tomorrow, you have no obligation to convey that to your viewers because you're reducing in in doing so, you're actively reducing their understanding of the world. You're actively participating in a misleading. I think in terms of the fact checking, this is where it gets the most tricky because there are times, and you all know this, but it has become so frequent now. And this is, again, a campaign tactic that's moved into the presidency. But there are times that a politician will say something they know is wrong. They know is going to get fact checked. But they would prefer to have a wrestle with a reporter for 10 minutes about immigration because they want to convey to the viewing audience that they are maximalist on the question of illegal immigration. And they are, and this is what, this was the, the success of Donald Trump's claim about having Mexico pay for the wall. There was no chance Mexico was going to pay for the wall. There was no one who was in seriously, who seriously thought that was going to happen. But the candidate Donald Trump and President Donald Trump are happy to have a 10 minute debate about Mexico paying for the wall, because he will continue to insist that they will. And what he is conveying is that he is the most maximalist on the question of immigration. And that's all he wants to convey. So he will take the small hit from the viewers who say, wait a minute, he's talking about something that is absolutely never going to happen for the benefit of spreading new, well, not news, but spreading the impression that, that he cares deeply about this issue. So when you have fact checks working to convey a false impression or, or a false information, then you get into a very delicate area where how do you do your primary job, which is to keep the facts as solid as possible without doing something that might in the end have the net result of misinforming people. And that's, that's very, very difficult. And uh, it requires us to do our job fairly and not take the bait and it also requires people to kind of recognize that we're in a new territory here um, and, and basically read more and listen more. Well, John, let me, let me ask you about another job that you've had, which is um, debate host. Given what you write about the presidency and about voters' expectations, we've got a debate in just under two months, I think, uh, the end of September. What kinds of questions should we be asking of our candidates to elicit how they think about the presidency, what they think the job is, and to let us see how they might actually do that job by seeing how they work through questions. There have been a lot of people who talk about how these debates have to be reformed. I'm wondering, having done it yourself, what questions you think, kinds of questions you think the moderators ought to ask? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question, and it, um, it's tricky. And one of the things that, you know, the whole kernel for the book was basically this disconnect between the way we talk about the presidency and what the job actually requires. And so one of the things I came upon when I did all the interviews for the book was when I'd ask CEOs or, or people who'd work for presidents or presidents themselves, what's the first thing you would ask about if you treated the campaign like a job interview? 
they almost all of them talked about how do you build a team? How do you manage a team as a president? We don't talk about team building and uh, much in campaigns. And uh, but the but but basically the presidency is an organization more than anything else. It's not just one person. And so getting an understanding of how they pick people, how they build a team that can deal with the most important part of the job, which is dealing with big, high stakes surprises is a really important part of the job. Well, how do you fashion questions along those lines? It's not so easy, but I would try and get some questions in there that got at that idea, that got at their theory of management. And and even though their answers might not be precisely great, when you talk to the leaders of big corporations, um, Tim Cook at CEO, for example, people who have been successful in high pressure management, which um, they speak about with a kind of um, proselytizing zeal because that that theory of management is really how they operate their companies, and they have to believe in it because if they didn't, their companies wouldn't go anywhere. And so when you talk to Tim Cook or Jim Mattis about leadership, they have a theory of the case. So you would want to excavate a little bit of that from them to get at that important idea. Another thing um, that is important are these, these other ideas of pe- the pastoral role. America is an idea. It is not based on where you were born shouldn't be based on on where you were born or who your parents were. And being the, the, the steward of that idea is very important, both because you have to remind the country of it when we are in moments of crisis and everybody wants to just do it for themselves. And, and you have to be able to speak rhetorically about the American idea, but it also has to be in the bones of your policies. And so to get them to talk about that. And then I think there are ways in which you try to get them to think out loud for the viewers. Um, in other words, their, their prepackaged answers are basically what they carry around with them and have all throughout the campaign. But we want to see them thinking out loud. And so you would present some questions that, would, that, would be of, that wouldn't be so oddball that you'd lose everybody, but that would, would get them to explain their thinking rather than simply recite their, uh, their policies. So, John, uh, uh, last question for you. If uh, by any chance you get asked to uh, host or be a questioner at uh, one of the Trump-Biden debates this fall, and given that these are guys who have been around the track for many, many years, their thought processes, processes, uh, their approach to governing is pretty well known at this point. How would you approach a Trump-Biden debate? Well, as you're quite right, you've set, the, you've set the, the, the difficulties there. I mean, because one of the things that's a challenge of being a debate moderator that's different than being just kind of a person watching is when you watch, you think, oh, I would ask this question. And implicit in your conversation you're having with yourself is that, that just simply asking a question will get you an answer. <laughs> but that's not what happens because they are they – are, there is – very, very little case where they really want to give you an answer. They want to give you a response. And there's a very big difference between a response and an answer, as you both know. And there's less and less downside in life to, in American political life, to giving an unsatisfying answer. In some moments, it's absolutely devastating. It's been devastating for the president recently after um, his interview with Axios. And there have been other instances. But but also the question is actually how devastating because it, everything is so polarized it doesn't it doesn't necessarily change the 
the political dynamics. So you have to, um, again, you have to answer, you have to ask a question that sets the stakes high enough that it puts some pressure on them to actually answer it. And that takes a lot of thinking. In fact, one of the best ways to do it is in is in town hall style debates, because it's much harder for a president to not, or a candidate to not answer a human voter who's right there asking the question. Again, this is this is what tripped up uh, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1992, mm. because you can't dance around a human being the way you can dance around a, a member of the press. You pay a greater penalty with the voters. So I would, um, you know, I would uh, it would take a lot of thinking to basically cordon <laughs> off all of the, the, the bad answers you'd get and try and put some pressure on the candidate to actually give you an answer that might be useful for people in making that decision. John, I've got I've got actually one last question, which is just the the prescriptive piece of this. Just very quickly, uh, and maybe this is another two or three books, but and I know you get into this in yours. But h- how should the presidency be reformed, and is that even possible in our current political state? It's tough. I mean, basically, I I lay out some ideas about the way it might be reformed, and. The minute I say them or even before I do, I'm I'm quick to point out that we have to be humble about how much things can be changed. I I think one thing we can all do and what I hope the book does, because it was my attempt to do it to myself, is to is to reset our expectations for the office, for what can happen, but then also for the people who want to be in the office. And if we reset them in terms of trying to match it up with what the job actually requires, we might focus a little more on whether they have the skills for what the job is and less the sort of stuff we do focus on in campaigns, which have nothing to do with whether you're, you're any good or have a chance to be any good in the job. I mean, one tiny little example is when people talked about Donald Trump as a businessman, they kind of left it at that. Donald Trump has, has had some success in his life, but none of the business success and attributes that he has match up with the business type attributes you would need in a presidency. I mean, they, they, they in, in many, many different ways. And so if you if we thought that through a little bit more, we might not just stop at the idea, well, he was in business and that'll be helpful for the job. And there are many ways in which actually he has attributes that clash with the job. So just that would be one thing is just to focus on what the job actually is as we go through a campaign um, to reset our expectations. Well, it seems unlikely that we're going to have a president any time soon who uh, doesn't feel the need to respond to uh, natural disasters in this country the way we have had in the past. Right. Anyway, the book is The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency by John Dickerson. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks. It was great fun. Good to be with you guys. Thanks to CNN Chief National Security Correspondent and anchor Jim Shudo, CBS 60 Minutes Correspondent and author John Dickerson, and Yahoo News Senior Political Correspondent John Ward for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.